Please turn with me in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. We are continuing a study. We've been in this study for the last several months, and we're looking today at chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. And I will read through verse 36. Please give your full attention to the inerrant, infallible, powerful Word of God. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. A movie came out last year. It was called Best of Enemies. It was based upon a true story from the early 1970s about Ann Atwater, who was a black civil rights activist, and about her attempts to do away with the segregation of schools in Durham, North Carolina. She was aggressively and even viciously opposed in her efforts by the leader of the local Ku Klux Klan, a gas station owner named C.P. Ellis. In the movie, basically tells the story what takes place over about a 10-day period where they held in that town of Durham, North Carolina, they held what was called a charrette. A charrette is where they bring in an outside mediator to conduct town hall-type meetings of all of the affected people in the community, especially when there's a division like there was in Durham, and to try to bring peace, to try to bring understanding, and to try to bring a resolution to the issue that they're in conflict about. Well, that mediator that they brought into Durham managed to coerce Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis to co-chair a committee to oversee these town hall meetings. And as the movie progresses, we watch as Ann and CP go from being sworn, passionate enemies who hate each other to eventually respecting one another and working together to end the segregation of schools. According to the movie, the turning point in their relationship was when CP Ellis's son, who was um, emotionally, mentally disabled, 
was being kept in an institution and was put in a room, in a shared room, that caused him to have a major meltdown. He wasn't able to handle being in that new situation. And when CP went to the staff to complain about it, he couldn't get anybody to make any changes. And he was frustrated and, and upset about not being able to get his son into a better situation. Well, Anne Atwater finds out about the situation. And because she had a friend who was on the staff, she was able to work behind the scenes secretly to get CP's son moved to a private room where he could be calm and could be, go back to normal. At first, CP was very angry at Anne for interjecting herself into his life, into his family life, and he yells at her. But eventually you watch in the movie as his heart begins to soften. And his attitude towards Anne starts to change. And as his attitude towards Anne starts to change, his attitude and his perspective about black people starts to change as well. And we watch as the movie progresses that he goes from being violently opposed to, what Anne, to Anne and what Anne was trying to accomplish to working alongside of her and working with her to bring an end to the, the segregation of schools. He ends up tearing up his KKK card and voting alongside of those who wanted to work to bring equality for the black children in the schools. One movie critic writing about the movie said that this story about Ann Atwater's actions and C.P. Ellis's responses, that this story would seem wholly contrived if it were not true. It's an extraordinary expression of love that Ann, Water, Ann Atwater expressed towards C.P. Ellis, the Ku Klux Klan leader. It's a good example of what Jesus is talking about in this passage, where he says here in verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus was always teaching about love, and he was always teaching his disciples about how to elevate their idea of love beyond what they had been taught. At one point in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There must be, Jesus says, something that is distinctive, something that's unique, something that is far greater about the way that his disciples love one another that stands out dramatically from the world so that the world can look at the church and say, you must be disciples of Jesus. There's something different about you. You love the way that Jesus loved. How is our love to be different? What makes the way that we love one another different than the way that the world loves one another? Well, let's look at the context here in Luke chapter 6. Earlier in verse 12, verses 12 through 16, Jesus has just recently chosen his 12 disciples 
And in the next section, he begins to prepare them for what it means to be his disciple. And one of the things that he teaches them through a version of the Beatitudes here is that they need to expect to suffer as his disciples. That they're going to suffer poverty, they're going to suffer hunger, they're going to suffer and weep. And then he says, people are going to hate you. They're going to exclude you. They're going to revile you. They're going to spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And so that leads him to say, what does he expect of his disciples in light of that? That people are going to persecute them. That they're going to have enemies in this world who hate them and mistreat them and abuse them. How is a disciple of Jesus Christ to respond to that kind of treatment? He says here, verse 27, love your enemies. When you're rejected, when you're mocked, when you're mistreated, love your enemies. Jesus gives the same principle, the same teaching over in Matthew 5, and there he prefaces it in this way. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says that because that's what the religious leaders of the Jews were teaching in that day, and really that's what the world teaches. Love those who treat you well, those who are part of your tribe, treat them well, but those who mistreat you, those who abuse you, those who stand for what you stand against, hate them, stand against them. Hate the Roman invaders and oppressors. I mean, we talk about enemies in our context, but think about it was what it was like to be a Jew. You had Roman soldiers marching down the streets of the cities and the villages in Judea. They were collecting taxes that were exorbitant. They were abusing the people. They were dominating and oppressing the nation. Every day they would see their enemies. So the religious leaders would say, hate the Romans. Hate the pagans, hate the tax collectors, hate the prostitutes. And that's still the way of the world in which we live. Hate those who look different, hate those who act different, hate those who believe different. Hate those who stand for the things that we oppose. So what Jesus does in responding to that, he's, he actually uses very extreme and provocative language here. He uses Extreme examples to illustrate the kind of love that he came to bring to the world to instill within his disciples, to enable them to show to others and to expect them to show to others. And the first thing he teaches here is that our love is to have no limits. Look, where, look at where he says, love those who hate you. Love those who hate you. Love those who curse you. Love those who abuse you. Love those who strike you on the cheek. Love the one who takes away your cloak. Love the one who takes away your goods. Now at the most basic level, what Jesus is teaching here is that when somebody verbally or physically abuses us or steals from us, we are not to retaliate or to take vengeance. There's something that you can lay, there's a plank you can lay in your basic moral worldview, is that you are never as a Christian, as an individual Christian, to retaliate against someone when they mistreat you or when they speak against you 
You're not to seek vengeance. That was part of the Old Testament law as well. It's interesting, in the New Testament, it's continuously quoted one of the primary teachings and really one of the summaries of God's law that's given in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you look at the whole verse, what it says at the beginning of that verse in verse 18 is, you shall not take vengeance, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, the Apostle Paul, elaborates on this over in Romans chapter 12. He says there, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It is not our place as individual Christians to seek to retaliate and to bring vengeance against those who treat us badly. Now, I do need to give a qualification here or an added thought that these instructions that Jesus gives are for individual disciples of his, for individual Christians. He's not talking about the role of government. Because Romans 13 teaches us very clearly that God has, in his common grace, he has instituted, he has established the civil government for the restraint of evil in society, which means that it is appointed by him to uphold justice, to protect its citizens, and to punish evildoers. And so there is justice, and we are to work within legal means, within the government that is an authority over us, to work for justice and fairness, what is right and true. But when it comes to us as individuals being mistreated by others, we are not to seek vengeance or retaliation. But Jesus is actually here making it clear that it's not enough to just refuse to retaliate. It's not enough just to refuse to repay evil for evil. He expects much more of us when we're mistreated. He says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Turn the other cheek to the one who punches you in the jaw. Give your shirt to the one who has stolen your coat. Jesus is purposely using extreme provocative images here to emphasize his point that there are no limits to the love that he is teaching to us. That there's no limits to the type of people that he expects us to love. He chooses the worst example, the most extreme example, somebody who's beating you, somebody who's cursing you, somebody who's stealing from you, even that enemy who is actively abusing you, you are to love that person. You know, we find it hard even to love family members sometimes, especially in the context of a month-long quarantine, I think. Sometimes it's hard to love family. It's hard to love friends. And Jesus says, I'm going to enable you to love your enemy. And that's going to be a supernatural kind of love, a kind of love that the world doesn't know. When Jesus was teaching his disciples at one point about what it means to love your neighbor, someone asked him, well, who is my neighbor? And the implication of the question is, there's got to be a limit. You know, tell me, Jesus, where's the boundary? Obviously, you don't expect me to love everyone. You don't expect me to love the worst of people. 
So where's the boundary? How do I know who my neighbor is so I can know who I'm supposed to love? And Jesus responds by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story about a Samaritan man, a Samaritan who is the enemy of God's people, who is both religiously, spiritually, as well as politically an enemy of the Jews, how he found a badly hurt Jewish man lying on the side of the road who had been beaten by robbers, and he not only saves his life, but he delivers him and, and provides for his care and for his healing. And so obviously the point of Jesus' story was you're to love your enemy. Anybody you come across who has a need that you could meet, even your enemy, you are to love that person. As Paul continues to say in that passage from Romans 12 that I read earlier, he begins that, pas that passage by saying, bless those who persecute, bless and, and do not curse them, repay no one evil for evil. He goes on to say later in chapter 12, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. That's the love of Christ. But how are we to know what love looks like, especially when we're talking about our enemy who is treating us with abuse? How are we to love that person? Well, Jesus goes on to say, not only does our love, the love that he is teaching us, that he's enabling us to show, not only does that love have no limits, no boundaries in terms of who it reaches, but it also has a different guiding principle than the guiding principle of this world's love. The world's guiding principle for loving your neighbor is if you treat me well, I will treat you well. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But verse 32, Jesus gives a different rule. He says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, in a casual listening, that may sound similar. You know, scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But though that's not what he's saying, listen carefully to what he's saying. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This has been called the golden rule. Even the world admires it and quotes it. But only those who have the Holy Spirit and are disciples of Jesus Christ are able to love the way that he tells us to love with that guideline. To do unto others as we would have them do unto us. It is actually a rewording of that Old Testament summary of the law to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, use the way that you love yourself as a guide for how to love others. It's not saying it's wrong to love yourself. It's natural to love yourself but in the sense that you want what's best for yourself. You want yourself to prosper. Now, when we were in the world, our definition of what it means to prosper, our definition of what it means to wish well for ourselves was very different than what it is now that we have been born again, now that we've been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, now that we've been given a different worldview and put in a different kingdom. Now we define what prospering looks like very differently. But we love ourselves. We want what's best for ourselves in the sight of God now. And so when we are mistreated or abused or stolen from by our enemy, we have to ask the question, what would I want for myself 
if I were in my enemy's shoes right now? What would be best for me if I were in my enemy's shoes right now? And so Jesus says, when someone curses you or abuses you, bless them. Pray for them. That's what you would want for yourself, isn't it? If someone punches you in the jaw, and that's literally what it says, that we talk about slapping the cheek, uh, and sometimes they debate, is that meant to just be just an insult or is it meant to be a violent uh, action? It, it, literally, the language is to, to be hit in the jaw. So it really is meant to be a punch. If somebody punches you in the face, it may be best for that person in God's eyes, not their eyes, but in God's eyes, it may be best for that other person for you to just turn the other side of your face toward them so they can punch you on the other side of the face. There could be a situation, and Jesus is laying out that extreme situation where that could be what's truly best for that person. Or in another situation with another person, it may be best for you to punch them back in order to keep them from hurting somebody else or to keep them from adding sin to sin. That may be what's best for them. If someone steals your coat, it may be best for them if you were to give them your shirt also. In some cases, that may be true. In other cases, with a different person, it may be best to call the police so that they don't steal from somebody else and so that they learn to stop stealing. That may be what's best for them and best for others. If you're mugged in the city and a thief demands that you give them $100, is it best for you to give them $200 instead? Maybe. Maybe that is what's best for that thief, for that enemy. Or maybe, again, it'd be best to call the cops. The, you see what I'm saying is it comes down to the question, what, in God's eyes, what is best for this person to help them become what God would have them be? To prosper them in God's eyes. What is best for them? That's what I want for them, even though they are my enemy who's abusing me. You know, parents understand this concept. Parents understand that loving your children often, if not even most of the time, means not giving them what they want or giving them what they're asking for, but instead giving them what's best for them. That's what it means to love your children, to give them what you believe in God's eyes is best for them so that they can prosper in God's eyes. That's what it means to love them. People often misunderstand Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek to mean that we are to be totally passive in the face of evil, to be totally passive when we are mistreated or abused or spoken against. But that's not what he's saying. It means that we are to, in that situation, respond in the way that is most likely to lead to that person's blessing, that is most likely to benefit that person in the eyes of God. What is to be asking ourselves the question, even in our pain, even in our shame, even in our scorn, to ask the question, what is going to lead to the most temporal and eternal good for this person, even if he's my enemy. Jesus not only taught us to love that way, that was the love of Jesus. 
That was his life. Jesus is the very love of God. He's the embodiment of the love of God. And he lived this kind of love that he taught to his disciples. Remember, he said to them in John 13, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. As I have loved you. What we're talking about is the love of the cross. Peter talks about this over in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He says there, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, Jesus never sinned. He didn't deserve to suffer in any way. He didn't deserve to be mocked in any way. He didn't deserve to be humiliated in any way. But he willingly submitted himself. He did the will of the Father, which was to suffer in our place for our sins. He bore the wrath of God on the cross in our place. Nobody ever took the kind of undeserved abuse that Jesus took when he paid for our sins on the cross. That's what love looks like. That's the kind of love that Peter says, look to his example. Don't retaliate. Do what is best for those who are abusing you. Jesus looked at us in our hatred and we in our rebellion, and he loved us when we had nothing to offer to him. Why are we to love and do what is best for our enemies? Because, as Romans 5 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And we are to go and treat our enemies likewise. In this very last section that we read earlier in Luke 6, Jesus speaks to our motivation for doing what is best for everyone, even our enemies. And he there says that our love is different from the world's love in that it seeks a different reward. Our love seeks a different reward. He indicates there what motivates the world's kind of love. He says in verse 32, don't be like the world, loving those who only, only loving those who love you, doing good only to those who do good to you, giving only to those who will give back to you. That's the kind of love that you'll see in the marriages and families of the homes in your neighborhood. That's the kind of love that the world is able to give and to operate in. It's also the kind of love that you'll see in the mafia or that you'll see in drug cartels. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. 
You do for me, I'll do for you. You give to me, I'll give to you. The world knows that kind of love. And that's the only kind of love that the world in its rebellion against God is capable of. But in verse 35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Of course, the word that he uses for love in this passage throughout is the word agape. It's the word that the scripture writers of the New Testament use to speak of this distinct, supernatural, Christ-like love that only born-again believers are capable of showing to others. The kind of love that gives and lends and sacrifices for expecting nothing in return. Now, Christians, they hear that, and sometimes they interpret that to mean that if you do a good deed and you expect a reward for doing that good deed, then you've just ruined it by making it a selfish act. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that it's wrong to to expect a reward for doing the right thing, for doing the loving thing, for treating others the way that he has treated us. We are to expect a reward for that. Three times in this passage, he says, what benefit is that to you? He wants us to be thinking about what is going to bring benefit to us. What he's saying it's wrong to do is to expect a reward from your enemy, to expect a reward from your neighbor, to expect a reward that is earthly and material. That's the kind of reward that we're not to be seeking. But notice what he goes on to say in the very next phrase. He says, and your reward will be great. There is great reward in loving others the way that Christ has loved us. There's great reward when you respond to your enemy's abuse by loving him, blessing him, praying for him, and giving to him in return. There's great reward in that. And of course he means reward from him. Maybe there will be benefits that come to us in this life, in this world. But what he promises is that he will give us joy, satisfaction, peace, and contentment in this world. And in the world to come, what he calls treasure in heaven. I don't know what that is. The scriptures aren't specific about what that treasure in heaven is. But there is reward in eternity for living and loving the way that Christ has taught us. That's really what sanctification is. It's teaching us to stop seeking our rewards in this world, in material things, and forming idols of those things in this life, but for looking for spiritual rewards, looking for kingdom rewards, looking for eternal rewards. And that is what is supposed to motivate us to love others. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. It's a teaching you'll find even in the Old Covenant. In Proverbs 19, 17, it says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. When I did a study through a a series of sermons years ago through the book of 1 John, the letter that John wrote, his first epistle, a lot of that book is about love. A ton of teaching in that book about what this love is like that Jesus is teaching here. 
And after doing all that study, I decided I needed to, for my own sake, as well as for my congregation's sake, I needed to try to summarize in a sentence, what is this love that is a new commandment from the Lord that's different from what the world teaches? And this is the definition I came up with, and I have found it helpful ever since. And this is based on the teaching of 1 John. Love, according to Jesus, is finding your joy and satisfaction in seeing others prosper in the eyes of God. Let me state that again. That love is finding your joy and satisfaction in seeing others prosper in the eyes of God even your enemies, even your enemies. Again, Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Why? Because we're going to look like him. That's what he gets to at the end of this passage. We're going to look like him and we're going to look like his father. In verses 35 and 36, he says, And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You see, that's how the Holy Spirit is changing our hearts, changing our desires, so that becoming like Jesus, becoming like our Father, is our ultimate desire and our ultimate goal and our ultimate reward. And that's what happens when we love others. Love one another in the church, love those outside the church, and love even our enemies. Listen to what Peter says over in chapter 1 of his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of our sinful desire. The Lord loves us, those of us who were formerly his enemies, while we were still his enemies, he loved us, he died for us, reconciled us to the Father, and then by his Spirit, he is causing us to become partakers of the divine nature, specifically that loving nature that looks and finds our joy and satisfaction in seeing others prosper in God's eyes. Many of you know and have heard the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a one-time lesbian and feminist activist, tenured professor at Syracuse University. She hated Christians, worked actively to oppose what Christians believed and stood for. Now she's the wife of a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and a well-loved Christian writer and speaker. And if you know her story, the turning point in her life was when a Reformed Presbyterian pastor wrote a letter to her in response to an article that she had published in the paper, which was attacking viciously the 
Promise Keepers movement, a men, Christian men's movement back in the 90s. She wrote a letter attacking that Promise Keeper movement. And this Christian pastor, this Reformed Presbyterian pastor, wrote a letter to her that was kind, it was respectful, it was thoughtful, it was engaging. And she just couldn't put the letter away. She couldn't throw it away. She was intrigued by it. She was troubled by it. Eventually, she asked to meet the pastor so that she could do some research. And this pastor and his wife invited Rosaria into their home for dinner. Had the same kind of polite, kind, generous, respectful dialogue with her that she had never experienced before with those who opposed her. And then she began to look at the Bible in a new light. She began to look at Jesus Christ in a new light. She be eventually became good friends with this pastor and his wife. And then eventually, she began to bow a knee to Jesus Christ. Cost her greatly. To put it in her own words, she said that she lost everything but the dog. But she gained Christ and the kingdom of Christ and eternal life. Rosaria's story is a parable for our own day. We live in a world that is divided deeply by tribalism. We're divided over politics. We're divided over social policies. We're divided over morality. We're divided over race. We're divided over gender. We're divided over economic class. Jesus said to his fathers, in this kind of context, he said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. We have enemies. We have real enemies. Enemies who hate us because they hate Jesus Christ. Enemies because they hate the word of Christ. Enemies because they hate the kingdom of Christ. And because we belong to Christ, they hate us. And so we do have real enemies. But Jesus commands us to love one another so that they will know that we are his disciples and to love our enemies, to seek to bless them, to pray for them, to give to them, to care for them. And by this they will know that we are his disciples and by this we have the hope of changing the world with this kind of love that only those who know Christ can show to the world. Let's pray. Father, when we look at this standard for love that Jesus teaches in Luke 6, we come under deep conviction of sin. We have not even loved our physical families well in this regard. We've not loved our church family in this regard. We've not loved our enemies well in this regard. And do we ask, Lord, in light of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit upon us, we ask for forgiveness. But Lord, as we look at our lives, we look at where we were when we were your enemies and you loved us, and we look at how you, by your Holy Spirit, by your grace, have changed us over months, years, decades even for some of us. We thank you, Lord, that we love better than we used to, that we look more like you than we used to. And we thank you for the promises of your word that you will complete the good work that you've begun in us. 
Lord, please continue to be patient with us, teach us, and give us opportunities to show the love of Christ to those who need to experience it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.